Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. I'm just kidding. Um, hey, we're glad you're, you're with us today, and honestly, Cody, thank you so much for for sharing wherever you are. Um, that's, not a hard, that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, there's a reason that I didn't volunteer to do it. Um, and so, Cody, thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that, and everybody else who, is, who has done them so far. Uh, but his story seems to, seems to ring true um, more and more, the more and more that I'm in ministry. Uh, the, mo- the most people I know that are, that are gonna come to faith in Christ uh, because of your involvement, you, you already know those people. And so that's really what this series has been, a, has been driving at. We're sharing stories like this and stories of people in our church who've come to faith in Christ because of people they already knew inviting them into a relationship with Christ. We call these people our oikos. And that's what we've been driving at. Oikos is a Greek word that literally means household. And the way we use it at FBH is to signify the idea that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed eight to 15 people in your relational world for you to make an impact for the kingdom of God, which means you already know these people. Everyone has an oikos. And the hard reality and and the the difficult thing that we're going to talk about today is that the majority of people in here would call themselves followers of Christ, but one of the most unreached people groups in our lives happen to be our families. And that's a hard thing. That's a hard realization to come to. Some of them are people maybe you even share a bedroom with. Some of them are people who are under, under your roof, under your care. Others are people that maybe you grew up with or you raised and have moved away. In our families, both immediate and extended, those that we love more than almost anything, yet don't know who Jesus is or does know who he is and have chosen to walk away from him is a huge, unreached people group. And I'm not saying it that way to like signify like, oh, it's just as important as, as missions or, or whatever. It is. But this is a massive group of people that simply we don't engage regularly. And we're going to talk a little bit about why that is today. But the question is, is what do we do with that? How is it that we can both love people so much and also know the greatest news in the, history of the, in the history of the world. And either they don't accept that as truth, or we don't have the, the fortitude to share what should be the most important thing in the world with them. They fall into one of those two camps, usually. So while this morning we're going to get a chance to look at a story that is found in, it's John 4, for those of you who have your Bibles with you, your phones or whatever, you want to take those out and click over to John 4. It's the second half of John 4. We looked at the woman at the well last week. This week, we're going to look uh, at uh, starting in verse 43, so you can slide over there. So while we, while we look at that, where, where someone's entire oikos, 
in John 4 has been brought to life. We're also going to look at how it can, how it is that we can share with those that are the closest to us. So like I said, last week we were in, we were in John 4 last week and we left off with a woman at the well and she told her oikos, her household about Jesus. And many of them came and placed their faith in Christ because of what he did in her life. And, and the story is largely going to have, this story is largely going to have the same theme, but we have different circumstances really surrounding it. So we're going to do something a little different today for us, okay? We're going we're gonna to actually read through that entire story. So we're going to start in verse 43. We're going to read through the whole thing, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to slice and dice it and figure out how it is that this story can apply to our lives. So starting in verse 43, and we'll have it on the screens as well. It says this, After the two days he left for Galilee. After the two days he had left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming to Judea from Galilee. Let's just, let's reset. Let's pray real quick. Father, oh man, I'm... Thank you for your word, Lord. I pray that you would, uh, you would guard my heart, you would guard my lips, um, and that these would be your truths that are spoken this morning, that I would get out of my own way, that we would get out of our own way, that we would soften both hearts and minds to the things that you have for us. Father, we love you. I'm thankful for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so here we have a story that is a, uh, it's a pretty dire situation. Okay, we have a man who's in a very dire situation. He sought out Jesus, right? And Jesus heals his son, which is a correct interpretation of the story. But we need to dig a little bit because there's some things in this story that actually can seem a little bit strange. So I wanna make sure I point them out and explain them as we go. In the first few verses, a few of these things come up. So if we go back and start at verse 43, it says, after the two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival. So or for they also had been there. Now here's the first thing it needs explaining. If you look at verse 44, verse 44 begins with the word now. And that means the verse is a reason for why Jesus is going to Galilee. So I take John to be saying that Jesus intentionally goes where he is less honored than in Samaria. 
right? We just, we were in Samaria last week. Samaria was where the woman at the well took place. So he has left there and he comes to Galilee to a place where he was less honored. If you remember the text, how the text ended last week, there's all these people who have put their faith in Christ. This woman's oikos, this woman at the well, her whole oikos had placed their faith in Christ. So Jesus is probably like a rock star in that place, right? Like he's walking around, doesn't have to worry about anything. People are accepting him and his teachings and the things that he has to say. He's got authority there. It's not a big deal for him to be there. And then he decides, you know what? We're going to go to Galilee. He's coming again to his own people, knowing that they don't understand him and don't honor him for who he is. Remember, Samaria, this people group, these Samaritans, right? They, like, Jews did not talk to them. And Jesus reached through a ton of these social uh, and religious barriers to reach out to this woman. And all of a sudden, he becomes a super popular dude in Samaria. And so now, all of a sudden, he's going from this popularity with this people group that he really doesn't fit in socially with. And he says, you know what? I'm going to go home. And he knows that he's going home to a group of people who do not believe him, who do not understand what it is that he is teaching. And so it's a really difficult thing. He's going to his own people knowing they don't understand him and they don't honor him for who he is. This isn't new though. This isn't new at all. In John 1.11, it actually set the stage for this strategy. It says, he came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. So the argument here of verse 44 seems strange to us. Go to a place because they will probably misunderstand you and reject you. That's really his marching way. That's what's going on here in verse 44. I don't know about you. That's not a place where I want to go on a regular basis, right? It's like going to the DMV. Like, hey, you're going to go to this place. They won't understand you and they're probably going to reject you, right? I don't, that's not something that I want to make a regular habit of my life, but this is largely what Jesus is good doing. It's not strange to him. It's part of the plan from the very beginning, even in John 1. He intends to keep offering himself to his own, and overall his own won't receive him. And eventually this is what's going to get Jesus killed, which is why he came. The second strange thing that needs explaining is the way verse 44 connects to everything else that actually follows. He goes to Galilee. He goes to his own people because he expects no honor there, right? And then you look at verse 45 and it says, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans, what? Welcomed him. Wait, he went to Galilee because they were going to reject him. And now verse 45 says, wait, he's going to Galilee and the Galileans welcomed him. Most of us have glazed over that. And like, oh yeah, he's going to be rejected. Hey, welcome, Jesus. Welcome. Let's come hang out with us. It doesn't make any sense if we're actually reading through the text. They had seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. So now you have to contextualize this whole thing and figure out, okay, well, how come he, John is saying he's going to be rejected in Galilee, and then when he shows up, he's welcomed with open arms. Well, if you read the end of verse 45, we recognize the fact that Jesus, the last time they saw Jesus, he had done signs and wonders there. The answer is that the welcome Jesus receives in this place is not what it looks like on the outside. There's a kind of receiving Jesus that has no true honor for his person, 
in it, for the person of Jesus in it. It's just an interest in Jesus's signs and Jesus's wonders. That's the kind of welcoming that he received. And again, this isn't new in John's gospel. If you go to John chapter two, you don't have to, but John chapter two, verses 23 to 25, it says, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, sound familiar? That's what he's referencing in verse chapter four. Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Verse 24, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. 24, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. They believed, John says, but this was not a kind of faith that Jesus accepted. It was simply an excitement about his miracles, not who the miracles pointed to, not the fact that the, the signs and wonders that Jesus was showing pointed to him being the son of God. And I think this is true in the culture in which we live. A lot of times people want the magical, mysterious, ultra powerful side of Jesus, but aren't huge fans of the things that he actually taught about. It's an important reminder to the idea that oikos is important because people who don't want Jesus need Jesus. People who don't want Jesus still need Jesus. It's been my experience that I want to give people kind of a pass as long as they're pretty good people, as long as they don't offend me or others too much, as long as they don't take too much time sitting at a green light after it had just changed. Right? I want to give those people a pass for the most part in my life. We love to point to, to famous athletes who are hospitable, maybe good people, maybe who are speaking out on behalf of social justice for the sake of social justice. And all those are good things. But just like those that greeted Jesus because of his ability to help them, there's an entire world of people out there who don't want Jesus, but they want his power, they want his miracles, they want a genie who shows up whenever they're in a tough situation. And I'm not just saying them, them, them. Every single one of us in here have played this game before where we are ultimately out of, out of options when we no longer have the ability to solve a problem. Then all of a sudden we're like, oh, you know what I should probably do? I'm out of options. I should maybe talk to the savior of the entire world, the creator of the entire world and see if maybe, maybe he can speak some truth into my life or maybe he can fix this for me. But that's not because we're turning to Jesus and God because who they are, we're turning to them because we want the genie in the bottle. We want the genie to show up. We're like, hey God, look, I really need a miracle right now, right? Don't believe me? Man, think about every single athletic team that prays before they go onto the field, right? I, I, I mean, both, you know both teams are praying. Like one of God is gonna, God is gonna answer one of their prayers in one way or another, right? The winning team's like, man, to God be the glory, to God be the glory. And the losing team is just like, man, this is terrible. And they don't talk about God anymore. They're both praying. Man, I remember watching a documentary about the Civil War. And in the Civil War, both sides are praying to God to deliver them from the other side. I mean, it was absolutely fascinating. And we want the genie in the bottle God to show up when we're in a tough situation. 
And it isn't always that, that these people don't know the truth and they're rebelling. I think, I think people get caught up in the attractiveness of Jesus' power and his ability to make difficult situations bearable because of what he's able to do. And what he's able to do sidetracks them. They get caught up over here. That's why the health and wealth and prosperity gospel, the signs and wonders, the Benny Hinn, people falling down and shaking on stage and all that stuff that goes on, people are attracted to that because they're attracted to the signs and wonders side of things. They think it's a fascinating thing. Man, I want that God, but then ultimately we are ignoring what the signs and wonders, who the signs and wonders are pointing to. Think about your people. Think about your oikos, because even people who don't want Jesus still need Jesus. Think about your oikos, your 8 to 15. If I had to guess, I would assume that every single one of them has prayed to God before when they were in a tight spot, hoping that Jesus would show up in some way. Hoping that Jesus' power, his signs, and his wonders would show up in some way. And then... They either are answered or they're ignored or the answer is no. And then they simply continue on their way. Oftentimes people simply don't want Jesus, but rather want his power. And it's heartbreaking. And that's what we have here with these people in Galilee that Jesus is coming to see. Man, they're welcoming him with open arms, not because of the things that he's teaching, but because of his signs and wonders that he's showing. And they're ignoring who it is they're supporting they're supposed to point to. So let's continue. We get to verse 46, and it seems, it seems like the scene has kind of changed, starting in verse 46. But really, verse 46, uh, we have a great example of someone who actually wanted Jesus' signs and wonders, but at first doesn't care about who is performing the signs and wonders. It says this, once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Okay, so when Jesus is talking to the man, it's really fascinating because the man, he came, he went to him and he begged, verse 47, begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And Jesus' response here wasn't directly to the man. Jesus' response here in verse 48 was to everybody who was there. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. So this guy who came up and said, Jesus, I need you to heal my son. It's like Jesus is not only responding to him, but he's responding to the entire crowd in this instance. Unless you people not unless you, as an individual royal official, unless you people, all of the people present, see signs and wonders, you will never believe. You say you believe, but, like your, but, but your belief, like those folks in Jerusalem back in John 2.23, it's not real belief that honors him. Those people's belief isn't honoring. We can call it belief, but it's not the kind that unites those people to Jesus as one who sees and treasures him as the son of God, who's full of both grace and full of truth. But now what about the official? Because largely that's what we're talking about today. What about the official? Was he in that crowd who believed or in the crowd who didn't believe? 
Did he believe as a, as a sign seeker, but not as a savior seeker? A lover of Jesus' power, but not a lover of the person of Jesus? And that's the question we have to get to. It seems to me that here, Jesus is actually testing him. Jesus is testing him. The official is asking for a miracle for his dying son in a place, in a time where people love to see miracles. And he seems to be asking for the same reason any unbelieving person would love to see a miracle. I have a health need, fix it. I have a health need, fix it. I have a job need, fix it. Not, I have a sin issue, heal it. And that's largely what I think he is getting at here. Unbelievers don't love God. Unbelievers, specifically in this place, they use God to accomplish an end to a mean. I mean, whatever, you know where I'm going. So Jesus bluntly says to the man, it says that Jesus said to him in verse 48 that he and the other Galileans are sign seekers. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. One of the most interesting things about the passage to me is the official doesn't even acknowledge what Jesus just said. He ignores it. Look at verse 49. It says, the royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus just throws this bomb out here in verse 48. Right? And he's just like, y'all aren't going to believe me unless you see signs and wonders in 49. This guy is unfazed. And he's just like, sir, come down before my child dies. Verse 50, go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. One of the things that's remarkable about this is the man had asked Jesus to come with him. Because my assumption here is any signs and wonders that he had seen, Jesus did them at the present time while Jesus was present. But when Jesus simply spoke, go, your son will live, the man actually obeys here without question. He goes. He believed and he went. He didn't insist on seeing the miracle. He didn't complain that Jesus would not come with him. And amazingly, he left. John says, believing. He left believing. I'm inclined to think that in that moment of seeing Jesus speak so so sovereignly in his spirit of his accusation, something awakened in that man. He saw something more than a miracle worker. I mean, this man is totally desperate. In a time where if your kid got sick or if your kid had a fever, man, they're gonna be on the brink of death. There wasn't modern medicine back then. Like Jesus was his only hope. Man, if my kids lived back then, I, like I would have half as many because I swear they're sick all the time. All the time. And so I can see the desperate need in this man, right? He is in a dire situation. For us, it's a reminder of the fact, though, that oikos is important because people who are desperate need Jesus. People who are desperate need Jesus. Jesus. How many times do we think about Jesus as soon as we are out of options? Like I said, he seems to be the one who comes up anytime there is something else that we can no longer contribute to. Seems when we're out of options, that's who we turn to. Beyond those who already know him, though, people who don't know him and are out of options need him as much as we do. Did you know that the spread 
of the gospel has been more rapid in third world countries than in any other place in the last century? Some of you guys are like, yeah, I knew that. For instance, in 1900, okay, 1900, there's approximately 10 million Christians in Africa. And they go, oh, that's pretty good, 10 million Christians in Africa uh, in 1900. By the year 2000, there were 360 million 36 times more, or 336 times more. By 2025, conservative estimates, conservative estimates say that the number is going to rise to 633 million. More than double where it is now. Those same estimates put the number of Christians in Latin America in 2025 at 640 million and in Asia at 460 million. Largely over the course of the last decade, Christianity in the U.S. and in Europe has been a steady, flat line. Growth of the gospel is spurred on, I believe, in the third world because there is more desperation in those areas. They are out of options quicker than we are out of options. And it has played an incredible role in the spread of the gospel there. And we have to ask ourselves, who is actually more blessed? Is it us, who we can lean on our own understanding, we can buy our own things, we have access to medical care, we have access to clean water, we have access to all of the things that we would ever need access to here. And because of that, oftentimes we have replaced our need for Christ with our own self-sufficiency. People who are desperate need Jesus. We get confirmation in the next few verses that not just the official, but the official's entire oikos or household, literally household, when you see household in here, it's the word oikos, came to a saving faith in Christ. Verse 41 or 51, while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. Can you imagine just being those servants and like the kid lives and they're like, like, go run, tell him his son is okay. Tell him he is alive. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. While the son is far off, the dad's like, I see him. I'm going to get him. These servants run to tell him his son is alive. The boy was living. 52, when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time in which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole oikos believed. So he and his whole household believed. I don't know how the conversation went down in this man's household, but I'm sure they were all aware of the condition that the boy was, that the boy was in, as well as what the official went to do, right? Because if, if I'm this boy's dad and this boy is sick and I leave this boy in such a state that, that they have to come tell him he's alive, which means this boy's in dire straits already, and I leave everybody's thinking to themselves, time out, your kid's about to die and you're just gonna, you're leaving right now? Where are you going? Well, I'm going to the one place, the one person who I think may be able to help my son. So I'm sure people knew what was going on here and probably talked about what went down and there's some speculation there and you're welcome to disagree with this part. But one thing I think we can agree on is this, is that oikos is important because people who see what Jesus has done, embrace him. People who see what Jesus has done embrace Jesus. 
His entire oikos believed. His entire household believed. The official's entire household put their faith in Christ. People who never saw Jesus in the flesh put their faith in a man who completely and totally healed a young boy simply by saying he was healed. The official had to have talked about it. Your entire household doesn't come to faith by by not talking about what just happened, by not talking about the transformation that happened in your life. He had to have talked about it. If this is my kid and he's, he's lying home sick in bed and I make a last ditch effort to go talk to Jesus and it works, man, someone's gonna have to put a muzzle on me because I'm not gonna shut up about it, right? My kid is alive. My kid is alive because of this person, because of this man. I'm telling everyone. The difference between so many of us though and this man is that we have had encounters with Jesus and we simply don't say a word about it. Most of us in here have been saved by an incredibly loving God who sent his son on our behalf. However, very few of us in here have had the excitement and recognition that his grace is free to all of us. So it's my responsibility to share it. That's one of the large reasons that the American church has flatlined. Because of the fact that we come in here and we learn things and we say we believe things and we sing songs and we do all the things that churches are supposed to do. And then we leave this place and we assume that we have left church rather than leaving and being the church to those who don't know what it's like to know Jesus. That's the issue as that this man had an encounter with Jesus and he wouldn't shut up about it. We encounter Jesus all the time and we can't open our mouths. And it's a hard, and it's not just an FBH reality, it is an American Western church reality. We've talked about this numerous times. There is a reason a younger generation of people don't come to church. It's because they believe, whether right or wrong, they believe that that their parents and their grandparents have been a part of church. They say one thing on Sunday or Wednesday night or whenever it is they gather, and the rest of the week, their faith is not lived out in a real and authentic way. And so they're like, forget it. That's lip service. I want authenticity in my life. Whatever it is that I believe, I am actually going to do, which is why the bar now is so much lower. Because they're authentic, but they're not held to a higher standard. They don't have to be because they're authentic. We've talked about this over and over and over again. We simply don't share what it is Jesus has done to allow others into the fold to be able to fully embrace him not because of a prayer that was answered, but simply because of who he is and what he has done on our behalf. So the question then is, how is it that we can share our faith with those who don't know him? What if I mess it up? What if my sibling doesn't know Jesus and I do my best to articulate it 
And as I articulate it, I stumble over some stuff and then like I've messed it up and he's never gonna come to faith because of me. First of all, if that's your assumption, you think too highly of yourself. Secondly, the way that we should be able to share with people, man, we alluded to the last couple weeks, is you don't have to be a theologian to tell people about Jesus. This guy was not a theologian. He was a royal official. And so he didn't know, I mean, there was no even Bible for him to know. All he did was tell people about the encounter that he had with Jesus. That's all he did. And because of the power of, of what happened there, those people were like, I'm in. Like if, that's, if that guy is who you says he is, I'm in. And his entire household was saved because of it. We've been handing out Oikos cards for three weekends. If you don't have an Oikos card, they're, uh, they're on the guest services table as you exit there. You can grab one as you, as you go. But for most of you, you have one. And if you don't have one, it's because you're actively throwing them away as we hand you another one. But you have an Oikos card somewhere. And two weeks ago, I asked you to keep that card blank. And I asked you to just pray over the card, pray over, you know, just people like, God, just tell me who it is that is in my life that I need to make an impact for the kingdom of God. And then last week I said, all right, look, you've been praying over this blank card for a week. And so now it's time for me to put actual names on that card. And so I asked you to do that. And I asked you to start praying for those names. This week, the next step in this progression that we're doing is I want you to work on your personal story about how Jesus has impacted you. Uh, I say your story because the word testimony is, is, can be foreign in Christianese to some people. It's a, it's a word, a lot like fellowship, right? That's kind of been hijacked by the church and no one really knows what it means, but we all kind of know what it means, right? So when I say your story, I'm just saying your testimony. For those of you who want to go with testimony, great. But what does your testimony look like? What is it that your story looks like? Man, if you have placed your faith in Christ, your story has three parts to it. Every single testimony, every single story has three parts to it. The first part describes your life before Christ. You don't have to get into like, like details here or anything like that. Like if you were, yeah, I'm not even gonna go there. Um, Never mind. You don't have to get into crazy graphic detail unless you legitimately think that it would be beneficial to those that you're talking to. So for most people, I don't share my dad's death with them unless they are going through some sort of cancer something or they've lost a loved one. Then I'll go into it because it's beneficial to the conversation. But the first part of your story really is your life before Christ, who you were. The second part of your story talks about how you met Jesus. That's it. And the third part of your story talks about how your life is different now that you're in a saving relationship with Jesus. That's it. That's your story. You identify those three things and you can articulate that, even bumble your way through it. That's it. That's how you share what Jesus has done in your life. That's all this guy did. That's all this official did was go and just say, hey, look, I met this guy. This is what happened. Okay, I think that I should put my faith in that guy. And they did. 
Like my testimony, I grew up in a Christian household, but I never fully understood what it was that that meant. And so because of that, in high school and early college, I got into some sin that was a real bad spot for me. And then after my freshman year of college, I had a very formative conversation on the phone with my best friend, Caleb, and we held each other to a higher standard. We said, look, if we're going to say that we're Christians, we need to begin to live like we are Christians. And so from that point forward, I have worked tirelessly and dedicated my life to loving Jesus and recognizing the freedom that it is that he's put into my life. And there's sometimes that days are incredibly difficult. And I honestly wish that, that I didn't have to live to a standard that I'm called to. But man, there's other days where I have so much freedom in Jesus and I'm so thankful that I never ever have to worry about my eternity ever again because I've placed my faith in Jesus and I would rather live a hundred lifetimes with Jesus than one without him, right? So I'm not looking, thank you, I appreciate that. But I'm not looking for applause. You know the great thing about the testimony you just heard and the testimony that caused you to applaud? Guess how long I took with that? 45 seconds. It's not a difficult, I have longer versions of it. You wanna hear the longer version? It'll be more beneficial. You're sitting across the table and you wanna have a full conversation with somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus? That's fine. Do the long version. This is the elevator pitch of my testimony. Then I get an opportunity to talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus. I'm gonna tell him what he's done in my life, not what he should be doing in yours. I'm gonna say, look, this is where I've been and this is the freedom that I have now because of who he is. So this week, that really is my challenge to you. I want you to begin working on your story. I want you to think about who you were before Christ came into your life. Think about the moment that allowed you to turn your eyes to Jesus and think about who you are now that Jesus is Lord of your life. Because I'm gonna let you in on a secret. All this that we're doing, this Oikos card stuff, this Oikos series stuff, it's not just to teach you more things. Church, you know more than any other believers in the history of the world for this era, not just this church, this era. We have more access to more information about who Jesus is, about who God is, about who the Holy Spirit is than any other generation ever, probably combined. But I can't back that up, so I won't say it. You don't need to know more. You need to do more. We as a church, I include myself in that. We don't need to know more. We have all the information we could ever possibly need about Jesus. We need to do something about it now. And so that's why I want you to work on your story. Because in a very real way, we are going, I am going to ask you to engage with your oikos. I know it's more than just a list that you have kept in your Bible that you open week in and week out. I'm gonna ask you to actually do something with it. And can you imagine, church, what would happen if all of us decided that we were simply gonna tell our story to one person in our oikos? One-fifteenth or one-eighth, whatever, it's still a small fraction of your oikos. One, one person that we were going to intentionally engage with them in a very real way that we would look at our Oikos cards and pray over them and pray for them and pray for those on our list who don't yet know Jesus, that we would get a real opportunity to have a conversation with them about him. 
The kingdom of God, if each of us did one, one, the kingdom of God in our context, our church would double overnight. Double. That's what happens if you engage with one person in your oikos, simply because we stepped out in faith and allowed other people to see what Jesus has done for us and allowed him to embrace them. This series wraps up in three weeks. Three weeks. Our last message in this series is August 11th. August 11th, we're going to make that day that we're going to invite one person from your oikos to our church. Write it down. August 11th. Circle it. It's weird. I said write it down and no one moved. August 11th is going to be that day. So I'm challenging you. And I'm going to take up that challenge as well because I've told you from the beginning I will never ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do. That on August 11th, I want every single person in this room who shares a faith in Christ to step up to the plate because you know enough. You need to do something about it. I want you to put your money where your mouth is and bring one person from your oikos to church so they can hopefully embrace Christ in the same way that the official and the official's entire household did. Let's pray. Father, thankful for your son, your word. And God, man, oikos is just, it's, it's such a simple concept, but man, we have a hard time wrapping our brains around it. God, that you, we're, we're already in community with people. We already share our lives with people. And I'm not saying we have to go make new friends. I'm simply saying that there is so much hurt in this room because of loved ones who don't yet know Jesus. Because of ones that, like I said before, maybe we share a house with them or we raise them or, or they married into a family. I don't know, God. I don't know. I don't, everybody has their own story. God, but I do recognize that we love them. And Father, in order to love them in the best way that we possibly can, we need to let them know about you and what you've done in our lives and simply allow us to share our story with them. And I know there's thoughts of, well, they already know my story. My guess is, Father, is that those loved ones that we have, we probably don't share as much with them as we think we do. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us a spirit of boldness, that we wouldn't be timid. God, that we would be willing to step up to the plate and put our money where our mouth is, recognizing that there's a whole lot of people in this world who don't yet know you, who really, really need to. And Father, there's another group of people in this room who maybe don't yet know Jesus, who maybe haven't put their faith in Jesus, and this, all this stuff is like, what? And so, God, I pray that that if they would like to put their faith in Jesus with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, they would just pray along with me. They would A, admit that they're a sinner in need of a savior. Recognize that all of us are messed up. All of us sin. All of us do dumb things on a regular basis. Scripture's clear about that. But B, that we would believe that you sent your son on our behalf to be able to reconcile us to you forever. For your glory. God, we believe that you did that and see that we would choose to follow you every single day, which again is the most difficult piece of this entire equation. 
It's not just affirming who we think you are, who the Bible says you are, but also doing what the Bible has commanded us to do. And so, Father, we love you. We're thankful for you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free. And if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.